Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content, to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation, and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. This episode is also brought to you by an app that I created called Still Believe. Still Believe transforms a picture in your home into video proof of your child's favorite magical characters. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy, leaving money under their children's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film visual effects artists to transform your picture into video. Just tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the tooth fairy, then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes, and you can then save it to your phone and share it on social media. The app is available for the iPhone and Android, and it's free to download. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleep. There is no service on that. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. To stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. They're moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was living his toenails at his desk. Welcome to this episode of the Working Experience Podcast. We have joining us today Mr. Philip Mudd. Mr. Mudd is the former Deputy Director of the CIA's Counterterrorist Center and the FBI's National Security Branch. He appears regularly as a CNN commentator and lectures around the world on national security issues. He's the author of The Head Game and the Black Site, and we are very pleased to have him on the show. Welcome, Mr. Mudd. Thanks for having me. Um, so I am about 50 pages uh, from finishing the Black Site, and um, I, I, love a good, I love a good fiction. I, I will have to talk about this later. I noticed that you were an English major. Yes. And got your master's in English. Yes, uh, I wanted to continue, but uh, for all those who, um, go through a difficult academic experience and wonder what the future is. I was not allowed to continue my studies at the University of Virginia, oh. um, okay. which then was one of the top five literature, English literature graduate programs in the country. I just was not competitive and it turns out I wasn't that interested. Right. Um, and also I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I wanted to teach high school st students. My mom was a teacher and inspired all, I have four siblings, inspired us to read and none of that worked out in the end. <laughs> Well, that's really, I bring it up because I am a high school teacher. I teach English. Oh, really? Yeah, that's my... You know. I applied to about 35 high schools out of graduate school, and they all said no. So, <laughs> like everybody who who's fails in the real world, you go apply in the federal government, you can get a job there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, because I, I uh, we'll, we'll get into this, but I, I've been, uh, every year, but even more so, I've been haranguing my students who are kind of reluctant readers that, you know, it's, it's evidence 
Like you have to back up what you say. You don't have to be right. And and from an analyst point of view, it, it has occurred to me that that it's a lot of the same skills apply. Like you have to be able to read something and say, well, this is what I think and why. And uh, I think so, but I realized when I was running. Uh, a lot of people, but also occasionally interviewing candidates that we focus too much on substantive skills, especially on that is the, what someone's Middle Eastern Middle East experience. And I realize the characteristic for characteristics for success really fit into four or five buckets. Can you write? And we had people from Harvard that could just writing was a lost art. Uh, I need active voice, very few adjectives and adverbs. I don't want more than one dependent clause. Can you speak? Can you speak without saying, um, can you speak in an audience where you feel pressured because they all outrank you? Can you deal with people you don't like? Are you, can you work in a work environment where you don't respect someone and still figure out how to get the job done? Um, are you passionate about what you do? Because if you're not, somebody else is going to beat you. And then finally, can you think? And, and my definition of thinking when I teach high school classes or college classes is try to articulate what you think about a problem, whether it's a food you like, whether it's a political thing, whether it's a movie, in 30 seconds or less, articulate what you think with no ums, a clear point, and get in and get. And then articulate the opposite view in 30 seconds to make your mind elastic. We should get out of Afghanistan. We shouldn't get out of Afghanistan. So I... I tell kids, you know, you could be a best, you can go to the best college for Middle Eastern studies, but if you can't write, speak, think, get along with other people, and you, if you don't like your job, you're, you're going you're gonna to have a hard time. Yeah, yeah, and it is hard to, uh, I, I'm, with the writing, and uh, yeah, that, that has become a lost art. But, you know, I also, I, I try to impress upon them that, it's a skill that you can get better at because a lot of people say, well, I'm just not a good writer. I'm like, well, how much do you write? Do you ever do it? You know, no. Well, <laughs> really. It's like people, well, you know, I do TV for like living. It's like people say, I just don't like speaking in front of audiences. And I'm like, well, you know, who, when you're 17 years old and someone says speak in front of the class, who likes that? Right. I guess there are a few people, but it's, there is, it's a, you can train yourself. And I, I have spent a lot of time training myself with some specific objectives in mind, but you're dead on about writing. Um, we, we speak 99.8% of the time. We write, and I'm guessing 0.2% of the time. Well, no wonder it's hard. You don't do it very much. It's like baseball. You can't hit a curveball unless you practice hitting a curveball. Yeah, and it's hard, and that's okay. That's, that's, that's okay. fine. It should be hard. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about your, uh, yourself, your background, your education, and uh, how, you, how you came to your line of work? Sure. Just quickly, it's pretty funny. Um, I grew up in Miami, Florida, fishing in canals and playing Little League, Little League Baseball. And we thought then that I thought I had to get out. Miami was deader than it is now. It was, it was less vibrant. So I went up to Villanova to the Northeast for college. I liked literature. I thought I would teach. My, I mentioned earlier my mom was a teacher. Um, so I went through graduate school. I thought I might get a PhD, but my grades weren't good enough to continue. So I got a horrible job, a technical writing job out of graduate school because I couldn't find anything. And my dad called me one day and said he had heard that the CIA was hiring people. At that point, I had a, a, a job in Washington, D.C. So I, I got in my Chevy Chevette and actually, and you could do this at that point, drove up to the front gate of the CIA with a resume. <laughs> and the security guard said, what do you, you know, youngster, what are you doing here? And I said, I heard you were advertising and I, I wanted to drop off my resume. <laughs> Believe it or not, they took it. And I got a call about a month later. Remember the old answering machines that had the red dot? Oh, of course. We yeah. got about 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. So, hi, this is Bob with the 703 number, which is Northern Virginia. Please call us. And I'm like, that's the CIA. That's got to be. Who, who else calls and leaves a message saying, this is Bob, nothing else. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's, I thought I'd do two years. That's what I joined in 1985. I did 25 and quit. I actually didn't retire. I quit in uh, 2010. And it was oh. a fascinating run. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the book, um, you know, Black Site and uh, um, that, that 
obviously is why I, you know, got in touch with you and all that. So I was wondering, like, you know, that was written in 2019. It's about uh, pre-CIA dealing with uh, terrorism and then the pivot point of 9-11. So you wrote the book, or it was published in 2019. What, what made you think it was timely now to write that? A couple things happened, one personal and one a little less personal. I like to write. I like words. I sit, I'm also a wine guy. I sit in cafes because I need ambient noise when I write. And I, I'm one of these people, you know, I'm sure the patrons are looking over saying, who's the guy with the fountain pen writing in a tablet in the corner with a glass of Cabernet? I mean, that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of it was I published a, a couple of books. I thought the publisher would buy another one. I mean, part of this was purely, I'm not writing something, somebody won't buy it. So I wanted to write more. And I, I was like, what's, what might somebody be interested in? I was running one morning. I live part-time in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where my girlfriend is. I was running one morning and a light bulb went on. I said, a lot, there's a lot of controversy. I probably started thinking about this in maybe 2016. A lot of controversy about the CIA interrogation program, and which is pretty much what the book is about, including things like waterboarding. And I realized people critiqued us, which is fine. People wrote thoughtful books, which is fine. They wrote less thoughtful books, which was frustrating. But nobody's ever talked to a lot of the colleagues I worked with who became friends. And a lot of them wouldn't, will never speak to someone they don't know. They just won't do it. And so I said, why don't I, it's, as, as, if you read it, you'll realize it's not really a formal history. It's a, it's a summation, kind of a narrative of what happened. I started calling and contacting my friends, colleagues. Most of them are friends, and they talked to me. I think I had one or two people decline, um, and that took probably a year and a half. I did some research. A lot of it I was there for. Uh, I tried to make the book third person because it gets confusing to go back and forth between first and third person, but I just wanted to write. I thought it would be an interesting story, and I thought these were people who would never tell their story unless I talked to them, so that, that was about it. And then the publisher bought it, which made me happy. Did you come at this uh, maybe somewhat of an angle of uh, trying to, like you said, some people wrote, you know, thoughtful books, some people not thoughtful. Did you come at it from a little bit of an angle of like, listen, here, here's what happened. Let me clear the air here. Yes. I mean, clearly I have a a bias. I mean, it would be stupid to say I was there. Uh, I actually, my career ended because of the interrogation program. That's why I left government. Um, I mean, I'm, I wasn't angry or bitter. It just, it just happened. I tried to think that this first, I want somebody to read it. So just from a practical perspective, I try to make it readable. Um, you know, someone might say this, this is a serious subject, but I, I enjoy reading it. I, I, I came at it thinking, I don't want this to be a defense. I want it to be, if you want to understand some of what these people thought, I recognize it's only a small sliver of the puzzle. There are moral questions or ethical questions or questions about where the White House was, what Congress was doing, what the American people wanted. But if you just want to step into the shoes of the people who were involved in the the detention of al-Qaeda prisoners starting in 2002, this is going to be a simple, whatever, I don't remember what it is, 250 pages that'll take you inside there and hopefully, you know, we talked about English literature, the language is clear enough that you might enjoy the read, might be too strong a word, but you might find the, the, the book captivating, not just informative, but captivating. So that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, and it was a real, I mean, again, part of the reason I contacted you is because it was a look at the process, like how do these decisions get made? Like who... You know, it seems like in, in hindsight, it's all preordained and then you read your book and you realize it's not. It's, try, you use the metaphor trying to build the airplane in the air, trying to figure out how to do this. Yes. Yeah, as it goes. Um, so as part of the, your writing process, like you call a colleague, you take notes, how, how does that work? I, um, I mean, that book was unique because I've only written three. I'm actually right now in the midst of selling a fourth, a spy novel. But um, because the earlier books were not interview books, I wrote a short memoir. I wrote a book on how to think about problems based on what I saw, business problems, life problems. It's a problem-solving book, kind of boring. Um, So I sat down and said, look, I need a cross-section of people. 
I need people who actually interrogated prisoners and I need CIA directors. I probably talked to three or four former CIA directors. Luckily, virtually, maybe every single person, if not virtually every single person I knew. Uh, so I didn't have to get introductions. I contacted them. In some cases, I traveled to Florida, to New Hampshire, because I didn't think, I mean, Zoom didn't exist that I remember, but I didn't think, especially given some of these topics that sitting there for half an hour on a phone call would be good. I wanted a pad and paper in front of me. Um, lots of times I typed notes because I typed, I was a uh, secretary in college. I typed very quickly. So I thought they might be intimidated by a microphone. I was typing as they spoke, which they knew and was fine. Uh, and then you sit back and I think there are three parts to putting together, for me, any book, but this book in particular. Going in descending order, one, what's the question? What's the question you're trying to answer for the reader? And if you can't capture it in one sentence that your mother would understand, I call it the call mom sentence. You're not ready yet. My question would be something like, how do I help the reader understand what it was like in a secret CIA program? That's it. Hmm. Second stage is there, I'm going to say somewhere between eight to 10 to 15 components that have to be in there. There has to be what was going on before the 9-11. What happened immediately after 9-11? How were the prisons constructed? That has to be a piece of it. How were the interrogations uh, managed? What was the legal piece? What was the policy piece with the Congress? So I think there's, I would call them building blocks. What are the building blocks that have to be in here to make this story? So that's phase two after your question. And the third phase is just information, data. I need, I need data under examples, uh, color, stories, under each of these blocks to help the reader understand it. That's, and then, then that's when pages and paragraphs start to come together. But question, <coughs> building blocks, and then data information, <coughs> excuse me, is how I sort of figured it out. So you sit down with all of these elements, your type notes, your handwritten notes, you sit in front of a laptop, do you do an outline? Do you break it down like that? Or you just go right from the beginning and edit as you go? Um, I do a couple of things. First, uh, outline might not be, might be too strong a word, a couple pages that are basically chapter headings. And in this case, those chapter headings are going to be uh, uh, chronological, you know, the book is chronological. What was, what was the 1990s into 9-11? And then when the program died um, about uh, five or six years later, what are the chapters going to look like? What's the kind of stuff that has to be in that chapter to make it successful? And then I also was highlighting the typewritten notes I had basically to say, what are things that people said that really have to be in here under any circumstance, even if it doesn't fit so perfectly, this is so interesting or so compelling, I have to have it in there. But basically chapter heading as part of a chronology and kind of a paragraph under that chapter that would be, where's this heading? And then just start, start writing. I write longhand with, again, with a fountain pen. I, I'm a, um, it's a little odd, I'm a stationary guy. I like good stationary. <clears throat> good paper. I type too quickly. I'm a very fast typist again because I was a secretary. So my brain can't keep up with my fingers. It's frustrating to write that way. So I write longhand. It's slower. As the sentence goes on, I know where the next sentence is going. I can think kind of in parallel. It takes time to write in long. And then I do the first edit when I type it into the laptop. Because I'll say that verb's wrong. That sentence is wrong. That noun is wrong that's passive voice we got to switch that so i'm doing really minor edits when it's going into the computer for the first time i was just doing that 20 minutes ago with a spy novel you know i gotta say i i love a good stationery store i i just uh, when i lived in brooklyn there was a play it was called park slope stationery i don't think it's there anymore yeah i loved i love a good pen i yeah, love I, a good <laughs> a yellow legal pad i i love it I'm a Levenger guy. I, I, I have, I think it's a little bit of, I don't know what the phrase is, ACD or I forget what they call that. I need things to be right. I'm usually in a wine cafe. I have a great pad of paper. 
I have maybe four or five pens. I know where I'm going for that day. Like I'll, I'll probably write a little bit more this afternoon. I know where the story is going to go for like the next three pages. It's not 300. And so that'll get written. I got to have the wine poured or, a Coke, or Diet Coke or a glass of water. It has to be the environment. I feel like I'm Hemingway in Paris. <laughs> the environment has to be right to get my head in the game. You know, it's uh, Heming. I, I'm always reading these writer's tips, and he uh, he said because I'm trying to write a, a a book about how he did the podcast. You know, the process of doing yeah. that, and it's kind of an ongoing story. But he said, always finish. Don't write yourself out. Finish strong, like you're happy with it, and then walk away. So you know you have a place to come back to the next day. And I always thought, yeah, that's good. Don't kind of write your because it is an exhausting process. It is. I, I, it's funny. I read that about three months ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's dead on. What I do at the end is to write. Usually I'm like on a roll. And I stop. Mm -hmm. with, I will write notes about what the next pages are going to be because it's already in my head. I just don't want to write it to your point because I want some mojo the next day. So I'll be going into a scene in the spy novel, for example, where the main character is going to Bangkok. I know what he's going to do in Bangkok. But I'm not going to write that. I would, let's say I've already been writing for an hour and a half. I'm going to, I'm going to put down, this will happen, just a bunch of little notes and then leave it. Uh, and then you start the next day and it's like, bam, you're, you're, you're sort of, you're, yeah. you're on the roll. There's momentum. Yeah. And uh, who, Robert Caro, he wrote, you know, the Lyndon Johnson. Brilliant. Series. Yeah. Yeah. I love those books. And then he wrote a book called Working or On Working. And he. Yeah, just he, recently. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks about writing longhand and he said, I got, it slows you down. It lets you get the idea. There's something about the, the brain, the arm, the hand, the pen, the paper all together. It just makes it for me, you know, just slows me down. Well, there's also, if my, if, oddly for me, if my hands are over the, the uh, keyboard, I feel like they should be, I should be typing. Oh yeah. It makes me frustrated. It's not just speed. It's if I'm sitting with a pen, I don't feel, and I'm thinking, what's this character going to do now? What's the next sentence? I don't feel compelled to write it immediately. And I'll also have on the margin on the right, I'll have an idea. Oh, wait a minute. In 10 pages, this has to happen. So that note will go on the right. So I don't forget it. And then, you know, 90% of the page is just the narrative moving along. But I just, I don't like writing on a laptop. I think it, it's, it changes the, the, the way your brain works. It speeds up your brain too fast. That's not good. Yeah, I also feel like with the pen and paper, I, I can make mistakes, cross things up. For some reason, on the, I mean, I can delete things on the laptop, obviously, but I just feel like, no, it's got to be, the, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have the same freedom to kind of yeah, yeah. cross things out, you know, throw it away. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's the disconnect. I mean, I'm 47. I didn't grow up with, you know, <laughs> I, I think we had word processors, but uh, yeah, it's, um, I just find it more enjoyable, you know, to do yeah, the, yeah. the pen and the paper. Uh, so I noticed that um, you have some names in there. You have George Tennant, Kofor Black, yeah. but there's a, you... yeah. Um, there's a lot that you leave out. Now, was that, uh, looking at my questions here. So why is that? And, and did it, were there times with the publisher where the publisher was like, eh, we got to know, like, I don't know if it's like reporting where you have to know the source or how does that work? No, it's, um, my deal, I didn't want this to get confusing. My deal with everybody I spoke with was, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dime you out. Uh, both because most of them would have been, would have been non-cooperative and it would start to get extremely confused. I probably talked to 35 plus people, all CIA people. My thing was, I, this is just about what the CIA did. I'm not writing a whole history of where the White House was, where Congress was. I thought trying to sort out at the end which three people wanted to be quoted on what the other 32 didn't want to be quoted at all. There are two pe you know, people who had these restrictions. I'm like, this is too confusing. I'm just going to say, talk to me and I'll protect you. Okay. The publisher did not give me a hard time. They did not ask about who I talked to. I've uh, been with the publisher for a book before. So we had a little bit of a relationship. 
um, I know them personally. I knew the, I know my editor, obviously, personally. They did not ask me about names. And, you know, it's funny you asked it. I was thinking at some point, what if, you know, what if they could say, did you just make this up? There has to be, there has to be some level of trust. They never asked me and I said, look, I'm just going to go talk to a bunch of friends and they don't want their names in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were fine with that. So there would have been, I mean, if you were not able to give those assurances to your colleagues, they're, they, they I weren't going to I think almost all, all of them, if not all of them would have said no. Right. Yeah. Well, plus you get into an interview that is just so careful. And I just let, and the other background piece was since I knew them, not just professionally, I knew most of these people personally. I, as you read the book, it's not all pretty. There's some nasty stuff in there, some mistakes we made, and they knew this. I told my friends, this is not a defense. This is not propaganda. But they knew I wasn't going to screw them. There was a level of trust. Um, one of them said it was the best depiction. He was actually the guy, for the most part, who managed the sites the CI detention facilities. He said it was the best depiction of what he knew that he had seen, which really for me was great. Uh, that's what I want. I wanted the people inside, the readers are, is, is one piece, but I wanted the people inside to say, this is what we remember. Well, yeah, and you, you cover some, t- I mean, the, the guy died. There was that, that detainee yes. who, who died and it, obviously yes. it, it wasn't, well, I guess you wouldn't use the word malicious. I don't know if, you know, people not. No, know but it was, it was, it was, um, you know, he died from hypothermia. They left him short chained in a cell in Afghanistan. He froze to death overnight. That wasn't purposeful. Right. But <laughs> that's yeah. to, to your point about organizations and, and initiating large programs. There's a, we should have done more red teaming, sitting back saying, uh, we need, to clean what we would have at the FBI have called a clean team. We need a clean team to attack this, what we're doing, what the path we're going down in terms of interrogations and detentions to attack where it can go wrong. Uh, that's one of the many things I would look back and say we could have done better on kicking the tires from the outset. But man, there wasn't a lot of time. Well, that's your we whole... captured a guy one day and all of a sudden you're like, what are you going to do with this guy? Yeah, I mean that like the CIA shifted from intelligence gathering to a, a military operation. Yeah. I think is what you said, and uh, had to do that. It seemed like in twenty four hours. Yes, I, I don't remember. I mean, I remember the capture of the first guy in the spring of two thousand two, a guy named Abu Zubaydah. We had not had access to senior levels of Al Qaeda, and the CIA informant base in Al Qaeda was weak, weak. Uh, so for us, uh, anything he said would be interesting. You know, what's your morale like? What did you guys think of 9-11? And, by, and people in the White House ate it up. They wanted to know anything about Al-Qaeda. And it didn't have to be when the next attack was. You know, this was everything on every news media, every page of the New York Times. This is, this is nine months after 9-11. We catch a heavy-duty hitter. He was a facilitator, what we call a facilitator in Afghanistan for and Pakistan for Al Qaeda. So when he was at the first, when he was almost killed when he was captured, when, when we first started talking to him, the question comes up, where are you going to put him? Are you, you can't put him on U.S. soil because all of a sudden he's going to need a lawyer. And I realize this is all controversial. People don't like to hear this, but it's, a, it's facts. It's what happened. And uh, that was happening as a business enterprise on the fly. How do we find a place? How do we make it secure? How do we build it? How do we staff it? How do we train it? How do you get the legal counsel for that? How do you ensure when you get legal counsel that the Congress is informed? Just a million things coming on us at, 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 uh, every day in my recollection. Well, and you talk about how, you know, before you would have to get intelligence filtered through whatever country the, the person was rendered to you didn't have direct yes. access to them, and that was never in a timely fashion. And and they would also withhold things if it was embarrassing to their yes. home country. And uh, you also talked about having the lawyers in there, like basically turning to them saying, is this legal or make sure this is legal or, yes. you know, yeah. The, the I, think, I think all of us knew that um, 
the program would be, we called it the program, that the program would be exposed one day and it would be controversial. I tell you, we were naive, I think, on uh, what happened with the Congress in terms of how quickly they backtracked and what they said. Uh, there's a lot of bad blood over time about uh, what the Congress said about what we did. But um, when the first legal opinions, formal written from the Department of Justice came over in August of 2002, even then people knew that there was still a lot of Al-Qaeda hysteria in the United States, obviously. There was still a lot of support for what we're doing across, secretly across government, but people knew that this would be picked over. So when the Department of Justice sent over guidance, the questions about exactly how do you translate that guidance into action were lasted for years, for years. And thankfully the lawyers were not just lawyers, they were counselors, they were very thoughtful and saying, this is what you can do, but understand this is how this might play out in a few years. That might not be what you want to do. Yeah, you mentioned a lot about atmosphere. Like there was a real, I mean, I, you know, I remember I was in New York when it happened and yeah. had to walk home from the Bronx to Brooklyn, basically. And uh, yeah, there was, I mean, you, you have that period of national unity and all that. And then I think you use the word inevitably starts to fray. Like, yeah. you know, and when cooler heads prevail, however you want to say it. You, you also talked a lot about getting paper. Can you expand yeah. on that a little bit? Um, Washington is a dog-eat-dog -dog place. And even when there is national unity, there is recognition that the CIA is an easy place to blame. It does not have a lot of supporters across the country. It's not like the military. It's not like law enforcement. People don't say, you know, thin blue line. But also, you know, I was a, not a politician, obviously, I was a career bureaucrat, I guess you would say. Many of us knew um, if we don't, A, have what we just discussed, legal authorization for everything we do, and B, have on paper who was involved, Department of Justice, White House, uh, those are the those are really the, the key players and also Congress. We screwed that up because we didn't write everything they told us. We trusted them. That was a mistake. Um, that when the reckoning comes, we need to be able to say, we recognize people don't like what we did. We all knew that there'd be disagreement about what we did. But this is how we considered the law. This is the written interpretation of the law we got from the Department of Justice. This is how we, on paper, how we executed that. And here's the people in Washington who signed it, whether it's from the Defense Department, from the White House, from the Department of Justice. So it, it wasn't just self-protecting. That's part of it. You don't want to tell your subordinates you're going to get you know, hung out to dry in a few years. It was to say, understand this was a considered national program across government. This was not a CIA rogue operation. In that respect, I think the CIA did a pretty good job. So you might put it as, if you tell me to do something, you're going to put it in writing and sign it. Correct. Like you need that paper. Correct. And I wouldn't be, that caused some problems. I was in West Wing meetings, that is the West Wing of the White House meetings, where we said we would not do certain things unless we had writing. Uh, is typically involved legal writing. And the tension in the air, people would say, first of all, they didn't, these are, this is typically other agencies who themselves knew this was controversial. They knew what we were doing and they didn't want to do it uh, because their name's going to be on it years down the road and some of them are in public now. But uh, that was, those were some serious, that's when you need experience, judgment, as I'm fond of saying, the hotter it gets, the best leaders are the coolest. You, people who lose their temper, who get excited when things get excited, that's not good leadership. We stood back and we did have some bad leadership at various times. We stood back and said, unless you give us this legal paper, I don't care how much you pound on the table, this prisoner is not gonna be interrogated. And uh, we won. Was there ever a sense or is there ever a sense in general uh, whether it's Al-Qaeda or 9-11, whatever, that like, hey, we want you to get this guy. And that's it. Like, we're not going to tell you how, we're not going to tell you not to do things, but we're also not going to tell you to do things, but we want you to get this guy. 
and they kind of try to leave it at that. Is, I mean, that, it wasn't it wasn't wink wink. What what I recollect was you know, the president used to say "wanted dead or alive," which he which he retracted later. But the sense was, if, if there's another event, and we look back the next day and said, "I wish we did X, Y, or Z," that's unconscionable. So I think one of the challenges of future generations when they look back and inevitably critique what we did will be to try to replicate, recreate the sense, the intensity that lasted until 05, maybe 06, 07. Um, there was a sense that everybody in government wanted this done, that is gutting Al Qaeda, and that if you were too cautious, that was a mistake. And so that's, it, it, you need that environment to come up with something like a rendition, interrogation, um, black site program. Otherwise, the, uh, otherwise the, um, the program wouldn't have happened. And by the way, the message is the criticality of leadership. What tone does the leader set when you're succeeding and when you're not? The tone then was whatever it takes. And people down at my level absorbed that. We said, okay. We got it. We'll do it. And that's how you get the program. Uh, did you have to vet your book through the, the government? Did I'm going to I'm gonna answer this question carefully. I sent, I submitted it for review. Okay. I've got comments. Um, I accepted some and declined to continue the review, uh, which in theory, the government could come after you on. I just published it. I said, F it. Uh, these oh. changes are not acceptable. And I told my publisher and the publisher's lawyers, this is what we're doing. The publisher's lawyers reviewed the, the manuscript. I explained that I had purposely avoided anything I thought was, I mean, the book's the subject matter is controversial. But I said, as a professional, I don't think there's anything in here that's particularly that my definition of, uh, I mean, there's legal definitions, but definition of um, stuff you shouldn't write is something that gives the adversary an advantage. I said, there's nothing in here that I think is either gives the adversary advantage, an advantage that lets the adversary, the phrase we had in intelligence is to, into sources and methods, how we do what we do. Um, there is obviously on interrogations, but at that point we knew there would never be another interrogation program. So Al-Qaeda can use this as a manual or the Al-Qaeda in 10 years, the CIA will never do this again. So I'm not telling, the adversary is not gonna be put in a facility like that with CIA people again, it's not gonna happen. So the lawyers from the publisher read it and agreed and said, we don't think you have a problem. And to their credit, the agency did not come after me after it was published. They didn't, did they, they did pull not. the uh, national security card? No, um, no, I, no. And I think it's, if you actually read the book, it's, I, it's, it's a, it was tough to write. It's an emotional issue, but I don't think it's particularly sensitive. Um, they asked me to take a ton out. I just said no. Yeah, I mean, I thought they might object. Well, to circle back to the, to the man you write about who died, I mean, if you don't put that in, then to a reader like me, it's not authentic. I mean, that grabbed me. That you, you were, well, for example, they didn't want me to say that we had detainees in Afghanistan. I'm like... <laughs> Doesn't There's everybody a, know that by now? On the guy who died. What, what, what are you talking about? I didn't say that. I just got the letter. Yeah. They send you the stuff. It's a very formal process. Um, I'm like, you want me to, we want to pretend that we didn't have detainees when there was a open investigation of a detainee who died in our custody. That makes, the, the problem with that process is the people who are undergoing or, or are involved in that process there's no downside to them excising stuff. I mean, why would they care? So they just take stuff out. You know, it's funny you say that because I interviewed a guy, he wrote the book called The Hard Hat Riot, which is all about like 1968, 1969, downtown New York. Uh, these hard hat guys attacked these Vietnam protesters. It was a huge deal. Really good book. And he was looking for like legal records from, you know, the federal government, they had some, they kept stonewalling him on an issue that was 1968. Yeah, it just, because it doesn't cost them. 
that's what I that's that's what I said. That's what he said. I'm like, do they just do this because there's no upside to them revealing yeah. it? And he said, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was on the inside reviewing manuscripts, you know, the guidance I would get was hey, flag anything. And at that point, I didn't care. I mean, yeah. it's like classification in government. Stuff is routinely overclassified. What's the downside to me overclassifying something? Right. Making something secret that's actually not that interesting. Who cares? Right. I didn't. I mean, I didn't, no skin off my back. Yeah. I've got a top secret clearance. I can read anything I want. I'm just going to make this secret. Well, I mean, I, I'm I, overstating a bit. But. Well, any institution, corporations, whoever, they, they just seem to have automatically like, no way, you know, we're not, there's yeah. no upside to it. But it's, the institution is changing because culture is changing. My generation is the first that said, you know, uh, I realize this is a secret entity, but we're going to. The American people pay for this. And I think a lot of the stories are interesting. They're not that sensitive. My generation is, and I'm 59, so I'm fairly old, but the generation before me, I think would not have, would not have liked this. And some of my peers didn't like it. Well, you know, but I, I think it helps because it's like, all right, at least they're being honest about it and their intentions. And you're maybe not everybody's going to agree and maybe they'll get castigated. But as soon as you start hiding things, you, then it's like, well, what is it now? then it's, it becomes even worse in people's minds than it, than it was, or less justifiable, maybe. Nature abhors a vacuum, that's correct. Yeah, so um, I, I, I thought of it because I read John Bolton's book, and he talked a lot about like going back and forth with them, vetting his book. I, and this I, and that. I confess I didn't really understand him. I would have just said, um, jam it up your ass, I'm going to publish a thing. I, mean, I thought what with his... Yeah, with his personality, I was kinda, no, he's not exactly a shrinking violet. No, he's not. He's not. Uh, but yeah, it was interesting how he'd like say, well, I can't talk about this because they wouldn't. I'd be like, oh, all right. Well. What, are, like, what are they going to They're not going to put you in jail. I wouldn't think. They I'd could, pre them, they could presumably come after the proceeds. That's very difficult to do. I yeah. remember thinking, you know, I, I, when that was going on, um, it's the only time I've, I don't know him personally, but I've seen John Bolton sort of shy away from a fight. I'm like, just tell him no. Yeah. No, I didn't really understand that either. Yeah, anyway. I, I don't know. It, it's weird with, tr not to get on Trump really, but I, th that whole thing is such an aberration. I, I can't, trying to see anything in that lens, I don't know, is very difficult. Why people did what they did and all of that. Um, so... You know, we, we have talked about the CIA and, and what you guys did, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in, like, what is the culture of working at the CIA, at, at CTC? Like, wh what kind of person, what personalities do you find there? Uh, people who are intrigued about the world. Uh, a, lot, a lot of travel. I, spent, I, didn't, I wasn't posted overseas, but I spent, I don't know how many times I've crossed the Atlantic and the Pacific, you sort of run out of. Um, so people generally from a young age who are interested about different parts of the world, Russia, China, uh, people who have, I, I don't want to get Pollyannish, but a, an interest in public service. Uh, you got to remember is Washington, DC. It's very expensive to live. If you get, we lost a lot of people when they had kids because that's when you start to realize I can't really afford to live here anymore. So the 30s generation, the, the people getting into their 30s might say, I'm going to go someplace else or go with a contractor. Um, how much Michigan, money, if you can reveal this, like say you've yeah. been working at the CIA for 10 years, how much money are you making a year? I left 10 years ago. So, uh, I don't know, uh, $120,000. That doesn't go that far in D.C. In D.C., I'm telling you, D.C., yeah. especially when you get kids. So people yeah. were commuting a long way. There was a generation coming on, um, and I'm sure that still is, especially with the technical age of 20-somethings, Gen Xers, who were very good with the technology. And a lot of what we were doing was tech ops. Uh, things like, um, things like, uh, are you still there? Yeah. Oh, I, th I thought I lost it. My screen went blank. Um, Things like email coverage, phone coverage, uh, the internet and communications were evolving quickly. In, in what it, this is you know, going back 20, 18, 20 years. 
So we're getting a lot of 20-somethings who are into it. Plus, the last thing I'd say is the mission on counterterrorism was extremely compelling. You have a, a job category called a targeteer. A targeteer, part of their responsibility is hunting people. So if you tell a 26-year-old who's got great technical skills, we're going to give you some tools to hunt John Doe in Afghanistan, and we need to get so granular on John Doe that we can figure out where he's going to be tomorrow. Especially in the post 9-11 era, the, that 26-year-old is going to be game on. Even if the work environment isn't great, the management isn't great, and the pay isn't great. That, that would, the mission was really compelling for 26-year-olds. I mean, do you, do you find you have like a lot of hard chargers, ex, you know, former athletes that, that like somebody would have been linebacker on their football team or a wrestler? Like you describe some personalities as like 24 seven, they're on. Yeah. You get two categories. The overseas, the, the business is basically broken up into people working the streets overseas. That's a type A people person. They'll work you all day long. My world was headquarters analysts, take all that data and answer questions like everything from how are we doing against Al Qaeda to how do we stop their money to how do we find John Doe in Afghanistan tomorrow? So very strategic to very tactical, very different personality types. Um, the analysts were quieter, more introverted, but I a lot of people took themselves I, often, I thought too seriously. They confused the mission and the seriousness of the mission with how seriously they took themselves. What I'm saying is a lot of type A egos. And uh, that over the that got more frustrating as the years went on. I got tired of that. Can I'm you, sure I was one of them, but you know, what the hell? We all look in the mirror and think we're perfect, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you describe uh, or, or give an example of a time, you know, when you saw like, this is just ego, this is not about the mission. Like these are two, you know, bulls butting heads. Uh, personnel matters. Um, you can't, can't have this guy. I'm bringing this guy home now. Uh, dealing with resources, budget. Resources are basically when managers make decisions about what's really important. Where your money is, where your people are, and occasionally where your time is. But the, but the inability to sit down and say, e even early on, I had people saying, we're not sending you these people. And I, well, we the, the mission objectives sent down said, you're going to give us 12 people. Well, if we send them, we're going to send the bottom of the barrel. I'm like, Jesus, you know, this is the most important mission the country has right now. Right. But butting heads about my mission's really important. Yours is less important. Uh, screw you. Uh, you're not getting these people. You, that, some of that was pretty damn ugly. Is there, are there issues about seizing credit for things? like successes or, or shoving failures off? I would say shutting failures down. Um, when you're in a non-competitive environment, it's difficult to have the humility to say we're not that good. And so I thought our metrics were very poor. How are we doing? Doing great. We took three guys off the battle, three senior Al-Qaeda guys off the battlefield last month. I'm like, well, what the hell does that mean? Um, you know, CIA has an ethos that says we're some of the best on the planet at what we do. Again, non-competitive environment. There's not another CIA in the U.S. government. So I thought the inability to look in the mirror and say, how do we do better? The inability to have conversations that say, where are we um, not achieving on the mission when we own the mission ourselves? Uh, people thought that their mission was so important they couldn't go away for three days to talk about it. That's what softies do. Like, well, how do we set strategic direction for a couple of years if we're sitting here, you know, doing who leaked something today? What congressional hearing do we have today? What guy are we going to arrest today? You know, there's a lot of chest thumping. We're badasses stuff that I thought impeded the mission. I, I, but I, this is not a universal view, by the way. I think many of my colleagues would dispute this, but that's what I saw. In any organization, problems with humility are really deadly. Any organization. Just to be able to say, we, we messed that up, or that's not what we do well. We need these other people to do that. Well, I think there's a simple question you have. Occasionally, you need to start a meeting with, which is, instead of saying, how are we doing, you would say, can you describe our mission objective in a sentence? It's like what we're talking about writing a book. Can you give me the 10 elements we need to achieve 
this mission objective. It could be a car company, it could be a pharmaceutical company, it could be the CIA. And then you start a session saying, I wanna have a conversation about where we're underperforming and I'm gonna start and I'm gonna lay on the table something that really hurts. You know, our R&D is great, but we're, um, we're two and a half percent below where we were last year on sales. Well, there's a new competitor who's beating. Well, okay, okay. Uh, why is that? How did they beat us? Starting conversations with, with um, where do we need to do better? Where can we improve? And then I would argue you have to have metrics, which we didn't do. If we think that we're succeeding, give you an example about taking Al-Qaeda money off the table, shutting Al-Qaeda fundraising. Why do we think that? Well, we took three guys out last month. Well, I don't, why would we think that's significant? So I think being honest about improving and then holding your feet to the fire to say, if we're really good at this, we ought to be able to measure. And if we can't measure it, I don't know how we sit here and say we're good at it. Would people say something like we took three guys, you know, out, are they trying to have the appearance of being productive? Is that, is that does it sometimes become a, a kind of numbers game like that? Yeah, I mean, these are good people, by the way. I think there's a couple organizational things you think, need to think about. That's how they grew up. Mm -hmm. the, the culture says, we go, we're going to go take out this organization we call Al-Qaeda. And taking out the organization meant ripping out their leadership. So, of course, people are going to start to say, we got three guys last month, we're doing well. I thought there was a lot of resistance to sitting down and, and, and saying, okay, if, again, if we're doing well, how are we going to continue to execute that? And how do we pe measure performance? People would say, that's, that's McKinsey stuff. We're just going to take John Doe off the table and then go on to the next John Doe. Like I, so uh, I'm making it sound too ugly. I mean, we succeeded in a mission that nobody thought was possible on 9-12. If you had told somebody there will not be another catastrophic event in the United States, people would have said, you're nuts. You're nuts. Yeah. And it didn't happen. So I think there was tremendous success. But um, I don't think organizationally we were as efficient as we could be. And part of it was, you know, you, you got to sit down and say, where do, where do we need to get better? And how is that going to happen? And it's, it's hard to, people would say, I don't have time for this. I got to go get John Doe. Was there a sense that like, look, we got to go before the president, we got to go before the Congress, the American people, and we need to show progress in this war on terror. And, and that's how we should like, how are we going to show people because I imagine there's a lot. I'm trying to th like, um, putting up a building like it seems like so much has to go on that doesn't look like anything's happening. And then the building goes up, you know, you have to lay the plumbing electric, whatever. Uh, was there that sense of like, man, we got to show some productivity here? Um, I don't remember that for a simple reason. There was so much going on and there was a lot of success in the first year and two years. We took down the, the, the biggest elements of the 9-11 plot within 24 months, halfway around the world when we hadn't even had a presence before. Incredible. Uh -huh. So I think there was a lot of focus on saying, what are we doing? How do we explain what we're doing? How do we scratch the itch of everybody in town who wants to breathe down our necks? Uh, a lot of it was positive. Like President Bush was very positive. He was very supportive. Um, but to answer your question, I think because the successes were coming, I don't remember Signer having to say, we need to explain how well we're doing. I'm like, we did. The story told itself, I thought. It was complicated. Uh -huh. You're talking about global operations in 100 plus countries that involve everything from coordinating with foreign security services, changing laws, developing homeland security, hardening cockpit doors, building secure um, detention facilities, building a whole cadre of interview. I'm doing, that's like 1% of what we did. So yeah, I don't remember having to rationalize or having to uh, defend much because we're doing pretty well, but that changed years on when people started to ask more about uh, detention interrogations and that whole thing blew up and whatever that was, 07, 08. I was going to say, I mean, then, then you had to, you had these successes and then years later you're being, um, the methods, I suppose, are being called yes, out. Yes, yes. Which is, in, and also do never underestimate the Iraq war. That eroded national unity faster than, I mean, I, if you had told me in 2001 that we, that national unity would have disappeared in the next two years, I'd be like, you got to be kidding me. Nearly 3,000 people 
people just yeah. died in this you know horrific attack where people were jumping off buildings. Uh, but yeah, the the I thought, you know, I'm a believe it or not, despite this interview, I'm a glass half full guy. I thought that was a sign of success. That is, people would not be debating this if there had been follow up attacks. And one of the the, the primary reasons for no follow up attacks were. U.S. military action overseas, CIA operations, FBI activity in the United States, and the partnership we had with security services everywhere. Everywhere. Everybody was in the game. Maybe not the Russians. They sucked, but everybody else. <laughs> it seems to be a, uh, a historical fact, doesn't it? <laughs> I know. Generationally. <laughs> the first time I ever met the KGB after the wall came down, I went to meet them in D.C. I don't think I ever told this story. And so I go in, it's about 9.30 in the morning. I don't remember what we were talking about, but these, the, you could not have come up with a, more of a caricature of a KGB person. I mean, the tie's undone about an inch and a half, and there are water glasses everywhere. I'm like, what's with the water glasses everywhere? Well, it's vodka. I'm like, it's 9.30 in the morning. And that was the beginning of, I didn't have that much interaction with, with the Russians. They're very effective security service, obviously, but I am uh, not a huge fan of Russia. <laughs> my, I'll never get a job there. <laughs> my sister-in-law spent at least a year, maybe it's three years. She lived in Moscow and uh, she was dealing with like nuclear energy issues, visited the sites, all that stuff. And she was living with this, she was just placed in a home and this woman would be offering her like a double shot of vodka at eight o'clock in the morning before yeah. she left. And she said, eh, well, you know, maybe I'll wait till <laughs> five o'clock. I mean, something. I feel guilty about having a glass of Cabernet at four in the afternoon. Yeah. And I'm like, well, we were and, raised, uh, this is very puritanical. And uh, this country is puritanical. I lived in Europe very. a few times and boy, did that change my attitude. I go out to lunch with friends now. I work for myself. So, and if I'm not working that day, if I'm not on TV, I'll, I'll tee up a glass at lunch and, Especially having lived in Europe, it's interesting when people look at you and say, you know, you're having a glass at lunch? I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. What are you in France, it would be like, you're not having a glass at lunch? What right, I know. <laughs> you're not having three drinks yeah. at lunch? I don't what's know wrong with you? what's going on here. Um, so what would, um, what would be, you know, ultimately, I mean, we talked, uh, I'm, I'm asking to sum up a lot, but from your book, like, what do you want people to, to take away from it, from that? That time again, you know, somebody who was like myself who was very close to. It. I mean, I was in Boston. I mean, I'm from Boston. My the plane took off from there. My brother was in D.C. when the plane hit there. I was in New York. So, what what would you want somebody to take away from reading Blackside? Two things. Uh, one is whether you agree with what the CIA did or didn't. If you want a snapshot in time that will disappear when all my friends and I start to pass away. If you want a snapshot in time and, and uh, uh, about what it was like and why they did what they did, this is your snapshot. Uh, you can almost step in somebody's shoes. And the second is more business oriented. I don't think a lot of people picked up on this, but if you want lessons of some things to think about in times of stressful change in corporations or in nonprofits, wherever you work, if you want lessons on what happens in high pressure situations, and I subtly try to put a few lessons in there that apply everywhere. This, I, I thought, I thought there were a lot of examples for what any company should do. For example, I talked earlier about be aggressive about red teaming. There's a, there's a page or two on ethics that I apply in everything I do, not always successfully, but it was a really good scorecard for me. Uh, and so that stuff's in there. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because um, I interviewed, I don't know if you've watched uh, Last Chance U. It's on Netflix. It's about junior college football. Um, and there's a guy in the first season, Coach John Beam, who I interviewed. And he talks about, he, he is a, a football coach, but he also, I think, is giving, uh, you know, he, he lectures about applying the same principles of coaching that you probably would at the CIA and you would at any corporation, just the same principles apply across the board about how to be successful at that. Yeah, I think you have to be able to articulate a vision and a sentence or two that everybody understands because you're gonna have to repeat it 50 times and believe me, they're not gonna understand it. Everybody on the team has to be able to articulate that vision and how they're gonna execute that vision. 
when they articulate how they're going to execute that vision, they have to explain with metrics. And the metrics can be loose. I'm not a numbers guy, but something that allows me to judge whether they're succeeding or not. There have to be conversations periodically every, I would say, three to six months about where we're missing. There has to be an annual conversation about resetting targets. I, I think, and I'm not an expert manager. We had very little management, almost no management training at the CIA, but it's just born out of watching 25 years of success, failure, uh, what worked, what didn't, visions that never went anywhere, visions that went somewhere, leaders that sucked, leaders who were really good, and just putting it all together, I think. Maybe too late. I wish I knew now. What I, I wish I knew 15 years ago what I know now, but that's life. So the CIA, like any other entity, is made up of people with their own uh, peccadilloes, peculiarities, all of that. The working experience started with these kind of funny stories. My, my co-host in this, my, my partner in this, uh, John, who I went to college with, he worked at, on Wall Street for a few years. And his, his take on it was you put people in these kind of pressure cookers and you're going to see some odd behavior. Like one guy, he would clip his toenails at war. He would put his foot up on the sink in the break room and clip his toenails into the sink. Uh, another HR manager talked about these employees calling him because one of their coworkers was chewing too loudly at his desk. So I was wondering if even at the CIA, you have to see these things. Um, I would recharacterize. I didn't see quirky behavior like that. We had a number of people who could not handle the pressure. Right. Uh, and typically you would just reassign them to someplace that was less pressure oriented. You know, that, right. that was, that was not common, but I dealt with that occasionally. I, I do think, that pressure allows you to see characteristics, strengths and weaknesses far faster. They just come to the fore, things like real simple things. Let me give you a few. Is somebody selling what they're doing or explaining? I could not stand salespeople. That is, here's how great we're doing. No, because that suggests the flip side. I want somebody to say, here's where we're struggling. If I have to ask you about weaknesses or vulnerabilities, that's a problem. Uh -huh. So the other, having people talk about vulnerabilities when pressure's on is difficult. Uh, it simply tempers uh, how people, uh, whether people maintain even temperedness or not, how they deal with rapid change. That is, we decided yesterday that we're going to write about this for the president today, but we don't think it's going to work. And somebody says, well, we already started it. I'm like, I'm sorry, it's the president of the United States. Life is a bitch sometimes. So right. I do think, I didn't see clipping toenails. <laughs> uh, I did once, and I'm not going to release a name. I was in a um, meeting in the Situation Room where a former Secretary of Defense started clipping his fingernails in the middle of a meeting with the President. Ah. I thought that was interesting. Uh, that'll go to my grave with me. Um, <laughs> uh, the two things that jump out to me are, uh, even temperedness and also the ability to sit down and have a conversation and say, maybe I'm not right. Man, that's tough to get. And crisis really, you can really see who's good and who's not really fast. So there, there does have to be a lot of juggling of personalities. Yes. And sometimes acceptance that nobody's perfect. That's Pollyanna. Like, what does that mean? Um, we used to sit down and say, analyst XYZ can write, can speak, yada, yada, yada. Uh, they're not the greatest in a congressional hearing. I mean, you start to pick apart everything. If you look at all the characteristics of leadership, I think it's really hard to have them all. I saw, I thought Colin Powell was pretty good when I uh, watched him work. Um, but accepting that an employee can be very good and not focusing on the one thing they can't do. Maybe you can train them out of it or her out of it, but sometimes you just have to say, sit back and say, hey guys, we're assessing Mary or John they're pretty good. Let's not ding them too hard. We spent a lot of time saying, Mary can't do this or John can't do that. I'm like, yeah, but there are nine things they can do. So let's capitalize on those. Yeah. See the best in people, I guess. Sure. You get the best. We weren't great at that. It's yeah. a very aggressive 
contentious in work environment CI. It is tough. That is yeah. not uh, for you would the mission unites people, but it's a bunch of hard charging, a lot of type A tough people, and uh, within the building they don't take prisoners. It was right. tough. Right. Right. Well, hey, thanks very much. This is a wonderful interview. Gave us a lot of a great insights into the CIA is one of those things. I think it's like making movies or something like everybody knows about it, but very few people know how it actually works. This, this was a great insight into that. Thanks. Thanks for having me today. All right. Well, thanks very much, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, thank you again to Mr. Mudd for lending us his insights. We'll talk to you real soon. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media and the Still Believe app, the only app that delivers video proof of the Tooth Fairy and Santa by simply taking a picture. Download the app at stillbelieve.co today and amaze your kids. And if you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build engage and entertain your audience reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com i would love to hear from you and that's it the end the sweet end until our next audio encounter